Welcome back to the Wrong Advice Podcast. I'm your host, John Picciuto, and I'm very excited to have my good friend, Jason Klingsales, on the podcast with us today. Jason, how you doing, buddy? John, I'm good, and it's great to chat with you again, man, and it's been a while. Oh, I'm really yeah. good. It has been a while. I'm so glad to get you on the podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, so I am a, uh, I feel like a unicorn these days. <laughs> I am a native New Yorker, uh, native New York City resident. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an uptown kid. Um, you know, I'm from, from Harlem by way of the Bronx is how I talk to people. And, uh, I'm long time in the media business, although in different capacities. Um, so the best way to describe, I guess you could say the uh, elevator pitch of me, it's a sports writer who does business stuff too. I like that. <laughs> that's, the be- that's the best way to describe myself right now. Um, I like but that. I, <laughs> I've been, um, I was a freelance sports writer for an editor for quite a while where, um, I became sort of, uh, I went viral about a decade ago. Oh, thanks to, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes, we'll get into that. But thank <laughs> you uh, Deshaun Jackson and Eli Manning. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, but I went viral about a decade ago um, as, as a reporter. Guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, also be, <laughs> but also beyond that, you know, I was in, I, 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 I can't say I dabble in this so much now because of the new job. But, you know, I've been, I've been in sports media for God, about 16 years in different capacities as a writer and as mostly as an editor. Uh, but I also worked in the business of media as well, where I worked for uh, some advertising agencies and some TV networks as a research analyst. So I basically looked at TV network ratings for a living. Um, mm. And in my current capacity now with, uh, with a research company, Insider Intelligence, which is part of Insider, Business Insider and all this stuff, I'm a senior reports editor, uh, mostly looking at the advertising and marketing world and you know work with the analysts to kind of put together the best stories about trends that are happening in the industry um but most of my work has mostly been in the editing space in the last few years mm-hmm. um i used to be the um editor-in-chief of the sports fan journal um, i worked in different capacities at that site um as we were an opinion site we did a whole lot of great work um where i got to cover great events including the daytona 500 a few oh, years ago cool. um I also was a editor and writer for Yard Barker, where I also got to cover different events, including like the launch of the Big Three uh, basketball league, the Ice Cube started a few years ago, and interviewed some great people with that. Um, yeah, I'm just Jack I don't of think all I'm trades. that interested. Jack of all trades, you know, that's the way you kind of have to be in the media industry. Yeah. Um, I I don't think I'm that interesting, <laughs> but I find the things that people are into so interesting, and I guess that kind of rubs off on me a little bit. I mean, I would uh, disagree so yeah. with you greatly that you are wildly interesting, and starting with the <laughs> fact that you are like legitimately the first person that I know, like in the world, that like went viral. Like I feel like when you went viral, that's like when <laughs> viral things like started happening. Um, yeah. I, like I I mean, yeah, ten years ago, it's like you know almost pre Instagram. I don't really quite know how Instagram how old it is but i think it's like yeah. you know nine ten years old and uh yeah. you you kind of went viral before viral was a thing um so please yeah. let's uh start with that story tell me how how you went viral so <laughs> and mind you you'll love this part that i'm going to say and this is going <laughs> to whet everybody's appetite it was just the third best thing to happen to be that weekend oh it was crazy trust me so um I was writing for a weekly newspaper here called the New York Beacon, mm-hmm. uh, which was mostly in a lot of the African na- African American neighborhoods in the city, Harlem, Bedford Stuyvesant. But also, if you were in Midtown and you just needed to grab a paper, it was there. So weekly newspaper, mm-hmm. and 
I covered the Giants for about seven seasons. I mm-hmm. did all the home games and, uh, you know, I'm talking about the away games, but I did all the home games and some playoff stuff. Uh, I covered the Yankees and the Mets a little bit. I did some other stuff with the Nets and the, and the Knicks and the Liberty. Um, but I was mostly known as like the Giants guy. Mm-hmm. And so this is a game in late December, 2010 and the Giants playing the Eagles. And, you know, those rivalries were always very entertaining, <laughs> for better or for worse. Mostly um, for depends worse. On... Yeah. <laughs> if you're a Giants fan <laughs> on this day, it was definitely for the worst. Yeah. And um, this was known, this is a historic game because it was the first game that ended this way. It was the first game that ended with a kick return for a touchdown. I believe it was uh, a so walk-off punt return, right? Walk-off yeah. Walk-off yeah. It was a walk-off. It was a kickoff because I was the, there, um, yeah. Oh, you see now. This is the thing I wish I knew that you were in the building. Yeah. Oh my goodness, because I'm <laughs> I'm in the building a whole different aspect. But it was a walk off punt return, right? Uh-huh. Um, for those who don't know, if you say the word Matt Dodge, I'm sorry, I have to say it to you, but Matt Dodge. <laughs> and it's just I feel bad for the dude now because like that was pretty much the end of his career. It was um, the end of his career. It really was. Uh, kicks it off. For, first of all, let's set this up too. The Giants. Blue lead in the fourth quarter. They were up by, what was it, 20 something like that? They were up huge. Yeah. And they suddenly decided to do the one thing that defense should never do late in the game, no matter what. They went prevent. Mm-hmm. They played prevent defense, which led to the Eagles and Michael Vick just going b- berserk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Vick goes crazy. Deshaun Jackson goes crazy. The offense just kind of makes a huge comeback. And here we go with a few seconds left. Dodge kicks the ball, Deshaun Jackson gets it, and he runs it all the way back for the score. First time in the nearly century history of the NFL that this happened. And that's how a game ended. Worst punt in the history of the NFL. Uh, it was it was brutal. Yeah. And I only imagine how it was in the stands, because in the press box, there was a complete silence. <laughs> with the, with the so is the stadium. Of, yeah. With the exception of two people. Well, I shouldn't say two people. The exception of maybe two or three people. There was a couple of the Eagles reporters that were just like, oh, my God, and just hyped. Yeah. And me <laughs> screaming, holy sh... Because I couldn't believe what just happened. Like, this... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it was yeah. like, I'm screaming, holy shit. Yeah. I, this really happened. Yeah. So... It was, my, it, was my bir- it was my birthday also, for, for oh. context purposes. Oh, Jesus. In case, you're, in case you want to make the story even worse. <laughs> Oh, oh, John. Oh, I'll see now, as if I could never forget it, now I feel like I have to actually call you and text you every year just to check on you. Yeah. So just just want to know, hey, what you drinking? Make sure you're all right. Yeah. yeah. It was shit. It was but, terrible. Uh, Absolutely terrible. Oh, God. Yeah, that's just crazy. Because then, here I am. I'm like, I'm standing here. I'm in disbelief. But I realize, okay, I have to now get downstairs and do my part. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't have a car. Well, I mean, my wife has a car now, but I didn't have a car. So the way I would get to the game was I would hop on that bus from Port Authority in Midtown to get over to the stadium. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, all right, I'll go downstairs. I'll talk to a couple of guys in the locker room. I'll do the press conference. Easy. Easy peasy. That's how it is. So the way the press conferences are set up with the NFL, it's that they don't open the locker room up until maybe about 15 and 20 minutes in. And the head coach is talking. So as you're talking to the coach, you got the clock in the – press conference room it tells you when the locker is going to be open but then the giants themselves will tell you when it's available mm-hmm. so 
Tom Croft was the head coach at the time, and he's just trying to answer questions of like what's just happened. Like nobody could fully understand what just happened, sure. right? Understandably so. And um, I think his name is Pat Hanlon. I forgot his exact position, but he was kind of the guy that was sort he's of still in there. charge of. Oh, he is still there. Yeah. That's right. Communication. He's still guy. there. Yeah. He's a communication guy, and he's he's a lifer. Mm-hmm. So he tells us like locker room is open, right? Now normally that's like okay, we're ready to go, and most people were just ready to go. However, we all step in the locker room. And only four players were there. <laughs> Usually everybody's in the locker room, you know, to talk whatever good, bad, whatever is going on, there's still guys available. So you can hop in the locker room and you're good. There were only four players that were still available, and I think they were talking to some media people. So obviously everybody's just embarrassed and angry and they're just like, oh, we're just gonna leave. They bounce, yeah. So so I'm thinking, okay, I didn't drive here, I gotta get that bus back. So let me just go pop over to the press conference room. I'm sure Eli Manning is going to be there. I'm sure a couple other guys will come out, and that'll be it. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, that's all I got to do. I walk in, and Eli is at the podium like early. He's just kind of waiting for other reporters to come through. And I'm like, right, I'm not thinking much of it. This is unusual, but okay. <laughs> he may not remember my name, but he knew who I was because he's seen me for a few years, and we've uh, had a good banter. Uh-huh. So. I go there, and I sit. I'm the first one there. Well, technically, I'm the first one to sit down. There were a couple of <laughs> reporters onto the side from, I out, think, MSG Network. Out of frame. Yeah, out of frame. <laughs> um, well, at least it seemed to be out of frame. Yeah. But I'm, I, I go in, I sit down, no problem. The reason why all this comes up is because there are a bunch of TV cameras behind all the all the chairs, and they keep rolling. They're not going to just shut them off and shut them off, uh, turn them on and turn them off. That's not going to do that. So they're just going to keep it rolling. So I walk in there. I'm ready to go. Eli's ready to talk. Other reporters are coming in, like, you know, a little bit after me, but it's fine. Not a problem. The next morning, the next day, actually, it was like the next evening, because I had no, no one had, it was normal. It was like, whatever, right? Yeah, it wasn't like the Twitter. Next, it wasn't Instagram. This was pre all that. Right. But then also, like, again, because of the context, and uh, mind you, uh, several games had ended at the same time. So, you know, the networks are bouncing back and forth between all these different games. They're not just going to sit there and wait, sure. with the exception of, I, with the exception, I think, maybe the local news, but nobody's really sitting there and waiting. Right. The next night on ESPN Monday Night Countdown, <laughs> my brother um, called, my brother is screaming, like, yo, Jason, you on TV. <laughs> and I'm like, did I pass by a crime scene? Like, what was good? What was going on? Right. <laughs> and then he rewinds it. And he shows me. <laughs> right now, I'm wearing a red Adidas T-shirt, and my face was as red as this T-shirt I'm wearing <laughs> right now. Because I was, I was, I was kind of embarrassed. Like, what? There's no reason to be, but I'm like, this is what I'm on TV for. Really, it's not for. It, this was it. This is so random and so weird. Because then, ESPN is showing this. They played. They had crickets from the time that they were playing this clip. I guess they edited and there's yeah. crickets because it was a long time, I guess, before other people were coming in. Eli got there early. That's how this really happened. There was nobody in the locker room and Eli got there early. So I'm like, all right, he knows me. Let's just go. Boom. Next thing you know, this goes viral, right? And I'm getting a bunch of phone calls. I'm getting a bunch of texts. I'm getting a bunch of tweets. I'm getting Facebook pings. I'm getting all this <laughs> stuff because everybody's seeing this for the first time. And I'm like, oh, my God. This is insane. I mean, I e- ESPN kind of, really did you dirty. They did me dirty, but I have to admit, like, I still think it's hilarious. Like, it even is now, this is, go, this is close to 11 years later, and I still think the whole thing is funny because this is what's beautiful about it, right? So, it gets played on Monday Night Countdown. 
it gets played on like later that week on the not top 10 countdown. Yeah, right. And I can't, and it came in second. Yeah. And I'm like, what came in first <laughs> to beat this? Cause this is awesome. Yeah. And there was a, um, there was a, there was a track and field event in Beijing. And there was a guy who I think he tripped over the first hurdle and they just said, ah, fuck it. And just ran through the rest of the hurdles. Yeah. I remember that. And, and I'm like, if that's the thing that beat it, I'm I'm so happy. This is this is this is awesome. This is great. Uh, but it got played with a lot of different media outlets. Um, apparently, um, Sal Palatonio um, had his, he did a radio show in Philly as mm. well, and I think he had said on the radio show like then a guy comes in there with his backpack, look like he's carrying C four. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god! I thought now I, for for reference, I thought someone on the Monday Night Countdown, and I can't remember who if it was Shannon Sharp then or who it was, was like, who let their little kid in to the press room while Eli? <laughs> that's new. Yeah, I'm like, that's I, new. I'm pretty sure that's, that's what happened. I'm like 95 percent sure someone interloping with the crickets was like, who let their little kid in with his big backpack into the press room? That's what so, I remember it. <laughs> yeah, and I think Trent Dilfer had said that oh, uh, right. he, yep. called, uh, he, he called me Jordan Explorer. Yes, uh, yeah, which yeah. I it was great. <laughs> uh, I, had, I had a bunch of different names. I thought it was awesome. Um, and I had a, one of my high school friends actually was a producer for Sports Center, mm-hmm. and she was trying to get me on the air just to kind of like later in the week to talk about this. But I kind of got they couldn't make it work because um, the UConn women's team was going on that crazy undefeated run uh-huh. and they were just pushing that. And I'm like, no problem. Like, yo, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Like, don't, don't, don't fight history. Yeah. Um, so they were trying to get me on to do something. Oh, so going back to Palatino, Palatonio, right? Mm-hmm. So my sister, I have a sister who lives, I have two sisters, but I have two sisters down there. One of my sisters lives in the Mount Holly area. So they get the Philly stations. And as soon as she hears that, she hears this, she calls in <laughs> and she's like, this is my brother Jason. No, he was not carrying C four or whatever else. He covers his eyes, this that, the other. And I forgot the name of the host that you know he was working with. But he was like, "Oh, how dare you disrespect Mr. Quickscales?" And I'm like, "Ah," oh. but it was just everybody's having fun with it. Yeah. And every year it comes up. There's a reminder of it, and it's just it's still funny. Um, but like I said, this is the third best thing that happened to me that weekend. Um, and the first two were. So uh, let me. I'm gonna do a countdown. Number two. Number two was the night before I just handed in my last paper from my MBA. Oh, f- it was, sweet. Yeah. I was like, look, man, I'm done. It's just just done. I think I went to bed at like maybe one o'clock. And then it's like, all right, I got to get up and get to the game. So I'm just, I'm done with this. The first actually is very personal. Um, so I had a dad. My father was a community activist a long time in, in, in the Harlem area. And um, he had passed away when I was an undergrad. And for a while, there's some people in the community who were trying to do something in his honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, long story short, there is a half acre park in Harlem that is named after him. Oh, my God. So, that's awesome. So that morning, um, they just, you know, how if you're in this, well, you, you know, the business, like if you're in, the, if you're in the city, any place you see like the sign of like coming soon or whatever else, they put up like the, the signs, like the blueprints, whatever it is, let people know that something's being developed. Mm-hmm. So. That morning, they had just put up the sign on the park, and it became real because, like, we saw his name really on the sign. Like, this is coming soon. That's awesome. So, just seeing that 
on my way to the game was just an incredible feeling. Yeah, talk about like, putting a pep in your step, right? It did. And so, like, the viral moment in itself is like, a, for personally, it's a cherry on top. But still, it's a it's just such a funny moment because, like, and I know they, it makes it look one way and it's not. But still, in the context, it's still very funny. Oh, yeah. If, if you're me, it's funny. And I don't like briefcases. So that's why I have backpacks. <laughs> so well, it's, it's practical like, for travel, for uh, commuting. Incredibly practical. And I used to have like some press connections in there. I had some, some, some food in there. I, I, I did my thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it was my, it's my security blanket. Yeah. So, and then now as I look back, you know, years later, I'm like, that backpack was ginormous. <laughs> like, it, it, it was just fucking huge. Because yeah. I have a nice new one that my wife got now. And I'm like, how was I how was I carrying that shit around? <laughs> I, it, it was it was like what was wrong with me? And but it's what it was. But thank, um, thank know, God that, it that, wasn't like one of those LL Bean, you know, initialed no. backpacks. You know, at least it was no, like no, a, I'm not a cool a cool backpack. <laughs> yeah, listen, North. Listen, the North Face makes some good stuff, man. Yeah. I mean that that, I thing, got that thing got me through a lot. Yeah, it, they see, make good exactly. bags. They make good bags. I mean, it's good for weekenders at times. I mean, I've done so many trips to Boston or Philly or wherever else with that thing just alone. So they got the job done. And, you know, it, it carries a lot of weight. Felt good. What what an absolutely <laughs> hysterical, like, just take from, like, literally, I, I said this genuinely. I think you're the very first person that I know to have gone viral. And thank God it was, like, almost pre, I don't want to say pre-internet, but, like, pre YouTube pre Twitter pre TikTok because that shit would have never died. It would have lived a million lives. It was it was so yeah. very funny in the moment and uh, just such a like a treat because I was like, holy shit, I fucking know that guy. I was like, that's my cousin's friend Jason. I was like, he's on fucking ESPN Sports Center, and it was just so funny. It was so. And you know funny. what? So many people were saying that mm-hmm. they 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 knew I did. They heard I did it, but they didn't believe it. Yeah. Until especially because. And I say it's respectfully told of the outlet. It's not like I work for an acronym. It's not like I work for a major publication. Mm-hmm. I was working a for a very, a very small paper with declining viewer, with declining readership because that's what all new papers were going through. Mm-hmm. And um, but I had this ticket. I had this pass that allows me to be in these arenas that most people don't get to. It, it is a privilege. Yeah. there's no question about it. I mean, I work my butt off for it, but it is a privilege. Absolutely. And, but but no one believes if you don't work for a major outlet, no one believes what you do if you work in media. Oh, sure. So, yeah. And obviously I was blogging. I was writing for other places and trying to get on other places. But it was like, but as you just said, John, like, holy shit, I know that guy. Mm-hmm. And I heard that so often. Um, I mean, I think it's like the original clip was viewed by so live. I think it said like on ESPN, like 13 million people saw that clip. Holy shit. And then you have like the YouTube clips and all that. We have been like a few million uh, <laughs> on top of the tweets and all that stuff. So it was a moment. And apparently, I think they got Eli to talk about it briefly where he's like, yeah, he's a good guy. You know, it's like, all right, well, there's validation for me as well. Oh, that's he may awesome. not remember my name, but he knows me to be like fair to him. I do. You know? I, do and, I do remember that from a few days later because it, it yeah. had it had like a, a few day life. Like it had staying it power in that they got Eli to comment on it like at the press conference after like Tuesday practice or whatever it was. And uh, mm. I remember that and I was like, Jesus Christ. I was like, what a fucking world that we live in. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I have to say, like, I know that people feel have, I mean, now there's a greater appreciation for him since he's retired, but I know that people had their strong opinions about Eli and all that, especially definitely with giants fans. But I always, 
I always had respect for the dude. I always, yeah. it, we were always cool. Um, and it's funny because I actually grew up a San Francisco 49ers fan. Oh, really? So, yeah. So covering the Giants was like, oh, God, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> it was like, this shouldn't be happening. It's like, well, I live in but New York, like, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, like, it's still, but the organization, the players, the coaches, Jerry Reese, who was awesome, like, they were always good to me. Um, Tom Coughlin was always cool. Like, the thing was, what I find in the business is that, if you don't give the respect, if you don't give the respect, no matter what your opinions are, whatever else, if you don't give them the respect, they're not going to give it back to you. And therefore it creates a very, you can tell by the way, certain people write the relationship they have with the players and the coaches. Do you and, think uh, that respect factor, do you think that's changed in the modern media landscape? Because I feel like respect amongst your peers is no longer like acceptable because you need clickbait you need an angle on a slant and you need to get a rise out of people so do you think that like level of like common decency amongst reporters and like the the uh people that they cover like even exists anymore um I mean, that's a great question but here's the truth that there's always been an issue with that mm. always okay what it is now is that we especially as fans and as media and as people who can just kind of hop on a free platform to see how things are going. Mm -hmm. We see it playing out in real time now. Mm -hmm. And then of course, as fans, we have one last, one less barrier to talk directly to the players or Ooh. the coaches mm -hmm. to let them know how we feel, mm -hmm. whether they hear it or not, it's a different story, sure. but it's, but that issue has always been there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can go back to like, we can go back to the days of Babe Ruth, right? Mm -hmm. Babe, Babe Ruth, for as iconic of a figure as he was, he was incredibly protected by a lot of the local media here. Hmm. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, his off the field exploits. Not that he was. I don't. I can't say I know the entire story about Babe Ruth. No, he was like a huge booze hound, like womanizer, yeah. but, a litany of other were, things. Right, and we were learning that more as time came along. But back then, because the writers. And were, were the, the reporters were drinking alongside with him mm -hmm. and womanizing alongside with him. Yeah. The way they would write about him and the way they would talk about him, it was to make it seem as if like, oh, well, this is just the great things about being an athlete. These are the perks. Or really taking out a lot of the salacious issues or even there's always been a question of his, um, his heritage. You know, there's always been some sort of a rumor about, well, was he actually part black and this and the other oh, so no like, kidding. with race yeah, yeah with race there was also discussions that some people wanted to kind of keep out there's it's been a very interesting wow. stories with him Ooh. yeah so but there's some good um, biographies i need to look into yeah i mean and it's never it's hard to say to if it's verified it's, i can't like i said i can't say i know the entire story sure. but, the but what i understood is like there was always some level of protection with the guys that would give them the quotes and the guys mm. who would give them the best stories and give them the best experiences. So fast forward that throughout the way of, the way their media has advanced and the way that access has grown in some cases, um, you know, there's still a level of protectionism for a lot of athletes. I mean, again, we, we can talk about another Yankee, Derek Jeter, right? Derek Jeter, oh, one of the greatest players ever, one of the greatest ever play. And again, is the same thing where like we can make it his, he was protected. playboy ant. He was protected in a way. Yeah. But no, not in a way, was, in every way. In every way. Yeah. But also, in fairness, Jeter himself is much more savvy about the way he wants to engage with media. Mm -hmm. um, he really picked and choose things until he retired, and then he said, all right, now I can tell you who I am. Sure. Um, but to your point, to, to your question, though, this is a long, long way of saying it, I don't, principally, I don't think things have changed that much, but what I think has changed are some of the participants, 
um, in terms of, you know, there's still issues of diversity in the sports media world, but there are more people, you know, in general mm-hmm. that can go ahead and say something and ask questions. There's the, um, you know, social media has definitely sort of helped athletes tell the story they want to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can go ahead and tweet and, and, and or they can tweet, they can put on Facebook, they can do whatever else, and they can tell you what's on their mind. Whether you agree or not is a whole different can of worms. And, of course, there are people who just like to shit post and just like to mess with them and try to get them get attention. Um, but the players themselves have one less barrier to communicate to people what they're about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's definitely been a change. Uh, but in terms of the relationship between the players and the reporters, um, I think that largely depends on what the sport is. Mm-hmm. It largely depends on um, you know the level of access there is to the sport. So, like, I think... With the major male leagues, uh, because of the TV relationships and whatnot, those are gonna, those, the TV people are going to have a unique relationship with the athletes that, say, um, a weekly newspaper guy is not going to have. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the local daily news, the, the New York Post locally here, or like, a, like the Boston Globe or whatever else, right? They're going to have a unique relationship with the players and with the coaches and with the team based on longstanding relationships um, that again, like a blogger may not have or sure. something like the web, you know, and it all depends. And, you know, look, some of these folks are now leaving, you know, their previous sites, previous locations or whatever else uh, for other outlets. And so because they have like a brand name, they have a credentials, they can take whatever they do and they have access and they can take that wherever they go. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely changed as well. Um, so there are a lot of moving parts. Um, so where it feels like things have changed um, and in terms of the respect, uh, you know, I, I think that the respect thing, it's a, like I said, I really do think, it, 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 I don't want to give you a concrete answer because it's really, really hard to it say depends. like definitively like this. It really depends. But I do think though, what we are, what we've seen lately, especially with some female athletes, they're going through things that male athletes don't go through. Oh, and I think that's yeah. another, I think that's another ripple that sort of makes this question really interesting. Right. Uh, uh, totally. And the, the, the context of that question can be applied to women athletes, women reporters, women in sports, women Man. in general have to deal with such innate, insane bullshit on the internet yeah. that male reporters, male sports figures, more male celebrities don't. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think all of us in some degree take some level of a privilege into what we do, right? Oh, so totally. listen, I am, you know, I, I'm a guy, I'm, I'm, I'm a black male, black cisgender male, college educated, whatever else you want to call it, right? There are some struggles I deal with, but there are also some privileges I understand. Mm-hmm. And yet, there are women who, you know, whether, you know, the intersection of like race and gender play a massive role here too. Mm-hmm. But I would never get the, I would never get the hell that a black, uh, non-conforming, you know, femme, whatever. I would never get the hell that you know people who maybe close, like female or or identify as female. I would never get the hell that they get. Totally. But the, and then even the athletes themselves. Like I mentioned this because I was just reading about um one of my favorite, you know, one of my Twitter friends, my favorite reporters, um Morgan Campbell. He's out of the Toronto area. Mm-hmm. He was writing about uh, Naomi Osaka mm-hmm. and you know her recent press conference and how that was such a ordeal for her and the way the media engaged with her wasn't exactly, you know, flattering to the media itself. You know, mm-hmm. she's going to catch hell in a way that first of all, men won't mm-hmm. Two, that 
to that athletes who play in team sports won't because mm-hmm. tennis is an individual sport. Uh, it's all on her. Yeah. And, you know, also adding her ethnic identity is, you know, half Japanese, half Haitian. It's like all these things that she's going to take on that most of the athletes won't. You know, um, Simone Biles court things. You know, it's all these other different things. You know, it's really interesting. And yeah, you, you know what the the frustrating thing to me, and and it is mostly centered around sport, right? Because there is this, you know, dynamic between athlete and reporter and outlets and the whole nine yards. The Osaka situation is uh, a great like kind of flashpoint for a person who was clearly struggling with her own mental health, which how in 2021 yeah. we haven't reached a point where mental health is the you know the tantamount you know climax of of like what everyone should be focused on is beyond Mm -hmm. me but to the same token this is a woman who is struggling with her fame with her identity as her like being a star in the sport all of these things and she catches zero break meanwhile Djokovic loses in the olympics storms out doesn't go to the press conference doesn't talk to anybody and he gets mm-hmm. a free pass it barely got like a blurb on the internet where yeah. I, wh- why we live in this i mean it, it is a double standard society that we've lived in for 250 fucking years and <laughs> god knows if it'll ever change but it is just such a frustrating experience to be like a casual observer of of you know uh, an athlete or just any really like celebrity like person and the the duality of how they experience life in doing something similar to someone of the same gender or uh the different gender or different context of the sport it's just so immensely frustrating uh that we still have these conversations on like a weekly basis yeah and you know what it is about that what gets to me like now now john you have a unique perspective even though obviously you didn't necessarily play in the nfl or anything like that but like you were an informant athlete right you 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 you, you did you did look right Mm -hmm. so and you worked in the business so Mm -hmm. You see how athletes have dealt with the pressures of what they do. Sure. I mean, listen, these people. I mean, listen. I'm I'm five foot seven and uh, very skinny. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, I I I peaked in high school. Right. <laughs> fair. So as did I, I. As did I. For the record. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. But but you did something. Like I'm. Listen. I I did not. Yeah. <laughs> but my. My envy slash admiration for athletes and sports figures are that they use their complete being to make a living. Mm-hmm. And very few people in, in the world can really say that. And the people who could probably relate to that most are other people in that profession, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So playing football, you got, well, the NFL, you got, 53 other, you got 52 other guys with you. In college, you got up to close to 100 guys in different ways who are mm-hmm. trying to get on or whatever else, right? Um, and you've seen from your experiences also working in the business, like how they deal with the pressures and some can glide by and be easy about it. And they may sort of imbibe in substances to sort of help them cope. Mm-hmm. Some struggle outwardly, whatever else is what it is. And it, they'll handle it a different way. Some people, because they may not be in a position of like the, the, the spotlight as much, they can avoid it until they screw up and then it becomes hell for them. Mm-hmm. So, we've it's, it's it's you're right about this it's like not just the history of like you know how genders and the differences of that but like we have now demonstrated evidence of about a, a century or so of professionalized sports to see how things have been done how athletes um how sports figures how coaches how executives or whatever else have dealt with the controversies dealt with the pressures and you've seen all the bad examples and we're thinking, like, we need to be better about this, but we don't become better about this. As a matter of fact, 
that's part of the reason why some people pay attention. They want to see somebody blow up. Oh yeah. And they want to see people crack under pressure. They want to see the worst of us mm-hmm. for some sort of dopamine feeling for the, for ourselves to make ourselves feel better about, well, we're not that guy. Yeah. We're not that woman. We're not, the, we're, it's like, it's yeah, sick. we're not, we're not. And if we were, we would probably kill ourselves no, for because sure. we didn't, we didn't spend a lifetime doing what they do. They had to build themselves up to deal with all this other stuff. Those who were successful enough to be professionals. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of us, like, to me, it's like, we should be like, we should probably we should be in awe. Bit. We should, the vast, I mean, there, there, there is a, there is a fair per- percentage of like casual or avid sportsmen who are in awe of the people and teams that they root for. But the vitriol and hate that make up the greater than 50% of avid and or casual sports fans is crazy. And listen, I'm guilty of it. I'm fucking tweeting a storm when the Yankees suck and the Knicks suck and the Giants suck and the Devils suck. And and because we all, for some reason, have this belief that we can do it better, we can do it smarter, we can make better decisions than these people who are professionals, who are, you know, 25-year league managers and and such. And it's just something about, I guess, when you get to a point where it's a game mostly everyone's played, whether it's baseball as a kid or basketball or whatever it might be, everyone has some tangent experience with the thing that they're rooting for. Yes, and I yes. think that might be the reason why we all come at it from such a overwhelmingly negative place when our teams are not doing well. <laughs> I, I'm yeah, not sure. Because we could always, no, no, I actually think it's an extra point. It's like, you know, sports one of those few things which people can, first of all, it's optional. Mm-hmm. So if you choose to get into this, this is because you, you see something about it that you want to get into as you know, we played as kids. You didn't have to play baseball as a kid, but you just did it because it was something that was a social engagement with all these other people. And, you know, something you built upon, you kind of love doing it. You got to use your body in a way that you normally wouldn't do at school mm-hmm. or whatever else it is. Right. So there's that allure. And then when you see somebody who may be somewhat gifted at it, it's like, man, I wish I was that person, especially if we felt like we played with somebody who was that gifted. We know how it was with them. Hey, I, I, I once struck out so-and-so, or I once crossed over somebody, uh-huh. or whatever. This kind of thing, right? Yeah. So we always think that we can do that, even if we just weren't that good. Right. And that stays with us, especially for people who may have, um, like you and I joked around about us athletically peaking at a certain point. Mm-hmm. But like, there are also people who probably mentally and socially whatever else peaked at that same point. Oh, God. <laughs> and, they never, and they never grew up. <laughs> you couldn't so, possibly be more right. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so they never grew up like me. Listen, I knew I wasn't that good, right? Yeah. I, I I knew what it was. I mean, like, and I was perfectly okay with it. It didn't take away from my enjoyment. But what happened for me, for for me was, and I, I want to be fair. Like I do think that, I do think that you know, I do think that gender and race and other demo, uh, and demographics do play a role in how we perceive things. Mm-hmm. And so I think Absolutely. with me had, and I do think with myself having similar demographics with some of the athletes I watch or, or whatever else, it's kind of like. And not to say that you know black folks don't go crazy and and go and go ballistic. I mean, we all do. It's a human thing, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But I do think that for me, like, I mean, I grew up with guys. I grew up with athletes, you know, folks who played, you know, decent college ball or pro ball, whatever else it was. And it was like, man, like I knew what it took for them to get out of this situation to to get this high. Like, I'm just going to be in awe. I'm never going. I might critique some things. But I'm never going to say, like, I hope you fucking die. I'm never yeah. going to do something like that. Well, I'm not going to be, that's, you know. That's predicated on the fact that you're a rational human being, Jason. 
<laughs> well, I'm not always. Yeah. But yes, you know, it's, it's that mostly, kind of thing. And, you're a mostly well-adjusted male. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on that. Yeah. But, <laughs> but like, and, but, but, I mean, that's sort of what it is. And I think, you know, you have the same thing. Again, like I mentioned, like you you played with folk. You, you did this a little bit. Even mm-hmm. if it wasn't at the high level, you did this. You understand what it took for somebody to go above and beyond the level you went beyond. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. you know, and then... And then working in the business, it's like, well, you also understood that there was a business around this too. Mm-hmm. So it's like how, and I think going back to your larger question of like the relationship and the respect between players and uh, you know, between athletes and media and now the fans, our awareness of the business is so much greater now in 2021 than it was even 10 years ago. And it was pretty strong then mm-hmm. that I think it makes us seem smarter than we are about mm-hmm. what's happening. And that adds on even more of the vitriol. Mm. It adds on even more because of we know the, the dollars and cents of what this seventeen million dollar closer is making, and how does he fuck up? And he's making seventeen million dollars, and yeah, I yeah. think that's a very, very, very good point. I think you're, I mean, look, you're spot on. I mean, look, Steve Cohen just tweeted about oh, not yeah. understanding how, <laughs> the, and it's like, dude, this is your team. So I understand you get frustrated, but also like. I you like him as a Yankee fan. I like him. I mean, fuck. Well, if, <laughs> it's hard not to. I mean, fuck, man. If if Steinbrenner was still alive and you know, ten years younger, right? If he, you know, Cohen is the new Steinbrenner. I mean, could you imagine George Steinbrenner with a Twitter account in the nineties? Oh my God! I mean, the newspapers you know would print themselves. <laughs> they, no, no, absolutely. Right. And, and but you make that's an excellent point. Like right, right then and there, and that, that also goes back to what I was saying before. Principally, a lot of things have not changed. This mm. is the way we go about it has sort of grown. Mm. So Steinbrenner, Cohen, um, you know, Mark Cuban in his early days of owning the Mavericks, um, you know, these things were just, there's always been somebody like that. Yeah. Now, what, what makes it funny about Cohen to me is that, you do, you earned your money from questionable means and you got to own this team. I think you should probably avoid putting as much heat on you as possible. Yeah. It's also a little entertaining, I guess. If you're not a Mets fan, you love this. Yeah, I love, um, I, I love it. I'm not a Mets fan, so I do. I do love it. I do. Yeah, yeah I can't. I, I can't say that I hate it. <laughs> but yeah, man, like it's 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 such an interesting life, and I think also like just the sports media. Like I, I get angry about it mm-hmm. because I see people sort of evoking their privilege in a way that's harmful. Mm-hmm. I, oh, yeah. I, I. And I also see people who like, you know, some of my favorite writers and my favorite places that I read, it, it's kind of like, I know people feel touch and go about the athletic. Um, I like but it. Like, I'm a subscriber. I'm a fan. Same here. Um, Mike Rakunoff was like one of my favorite writers there. He's now doing like more, he's going to start doing more business um, of basketball stuff for the athletic, mm-hmm. but he was the Knicks, he was the Knicks beat writer for the last two years. Mm-hmm. And as a Knicks masochist, um, I got, <laughs> I was so, and not that a lot of it wasn't deserved, but I got so used to reporters and writers just as, as they say in social media, LOL Knicks, right? Just yeah. finding a way to keep digging. Right. Mm-hmm. And well, it's, even the, if it's it a layup. A, it's a layup. Yeah. It was, a, it was a layup, even though it was like, nobody has to take the shot. Like what's going on. Um, but they would do that. They made their names off of that. And it Rakunov was great because he knew all the history. And he still said, nope, I'm still going to tell this story as it is. This is what's really going on. And he didn't let the past cloud his work. Mm. And a lot of people, a lot of Knicks fans really loved his work 
because it was, we already know what the story is. Just tell us, like, hey, what are these players thinking? What are these coaches thinking? What's happening? And put away all the stuff about James Dolan to the side. We already know what that is. There's no need to beat that horse. We already know, like, the 20 years of futility and yada, yada, yada. But just break this down. He, and yeah. I like he that. He was really, he was really good. And, like, those are the guys that I, those are the, those are the folks, you know, male, female, whatever else. Those are the people I look for, in addition to the great profile writers and all that stuff. Like, just tell me what it is. Because I can determine for myself if I like this or not. Yeah. And even if I even if I don't like it, you know, if you break it down based on like this is the story, this is what it is, this is the facts, these are what they were thinking. That's it. Yeah. Don't editorialize. And there's a whole lot of that. Um, but that helps you make a name for yourself and potentially get yourself on TV. Sure. To be a la the Skip Bayless, uh, Stephen A. Right. Of the world. Yeah. And Stephen A. can be told. And, and, and Stephen, it can make $12 million a year doing it. So, you know, it's, I mean, it's, we, we, we can spend two and a half hours talking about Stephen A. and Skip <laughs> Bayless. And, and ultimately, the, the juxtaposition would be they're both assholes. Um, <laughs> you, they're not loved men, that's for sure. For sure. You, uh, you've had the benefit of wearing like a multitude of hats in the sports industry, in and out of the industry, writer, editor, yeah. analytics guy. Do you have like a a particular focus that is like, Oh, I, I would like to do that every day if I could do it. Or like, I know it's not your current job. You're not writing as much as yeah. you used to. So talk right. to me like through your current framework of work and like kind of work life balance. Yeah, sure. Um, no, I'm, I'm, we've got so, such a, such tangents. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, no, it's a great question. So I actually, in between, like this last year, I was trying to build a, a, a website of my own with a with a team called mm-hmm. the Whole Game. Oh, cool! And you know, it's still. I mean, we just we all have stuff going on. We're now in like in our late thirties and forties. Like life is happening, so it's a little bit harder for us to build it the way we want. Um, but if you ask me, and the good thing is, I'm with a job that allows me to still freelance when I can and all that stuff with That's respect great. to their job. You know, um, it's all a question of having time. And when you have a kid. You don't always have time. Yeah, sure. But, uh, but, uh, but um, you know, if you ask, like, what was the thing I would love to do? Like, I, I was building that site because I wanted to sort of tell, you know, what we've seen in the last few years has been this intersection of sports and politics. Mm-hmm. And I had always been interested in that. But you know, even, like, growing up, I was very uh, pulled in by that. Mm-hmm. But I kind of want to tell it from more of a local or regional point of view. Mm. Um so I, I think what's happened the last few years because of what's happened in terms of the, you know, the, what we call the reckoning of the last year because of COVID and the George Floyd and Aubrey and, and um, Breonna Taylor protest, um, you know, people started really paying attention because of the wildcat strike that Milwaukee Bucks did uh, mm-hmm. during the bubble. And, you know, we, we know about LeBron James and stuff he's done off the, off the court as well and, and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and different athletes kind of get involved in sort of the social justice matters or, you know, in terms of female athletes, you know, in terms of what, what they're, they're, they're pressed and, 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 you know, concerned about. Um, but there, it feels as if that's started to become a little bit branded. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, is we the same old people talking about the same sort of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of felt that way. There's maybe a little bit of a controversial opinion. I started to feel that way about the whole Colin Kaepernick discussion. Okay. Where in the last year, truthfully, we haven't heard that much from him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt like he became the brand of the entire movement in sports, mm-hmm. which in a lot of ways was good mm-hmm. because it, it reminded people that sports had always had this intersection of 
uh, politics and gender and race and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it also became like a very easy sort of moment to bring out your pitchforks. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I, not that that stuff isn't important because it is, but I always felt like there were people in a local level and a regional level that were doing it. And they may not have always done it, you know, on the largest platforms. They may have always done it. In front of millions of people, right. Right. They've always done it in that, you know, localized police athletic league kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I used to work for PAL. That's why I mentioned that. Um, they've always done it in, you know, like, look, your, your local basketball tournament, especially in like a lot of minority neighborhoods, chances are there is a little bit of a connection between what that tournament is and where they get their resources from mm-hmm. and who supports them. Absolutely. So I've always been like in, with, in hockey, whatever else it is, it's like, I want to talk to those people. And understand what their sports stories are, and then to find out who those people are in general, so that then the reader, no matter if they come from Manhattan or Memphis, Memphis is a dope ass city, by the way, we all know <laughs> that. Um, but wherever they're from, they can relate to the story and not think about so much, not think so much about like the location or whatever else. They could think about it, it just connects to them. I really um, like that. Yeah, and because that's always been a lure for me, like. One of the major reasons why I love sports so much is because it introduces me to different parts of the world that I can't go to right now. Yeah. And there are people there who have interesting, fascinating stories that I think would help. For me, sports is the greatest social currency in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think this would be a, a great way to sort of spend it a little bit more. So that not, I don't want to get into this whole kumbaya bullshit, <laughs> but like all the divisions that we do have. A lot of it in the basic level does come from the fact that we just don't understand each other and mm-hmm. we don't understand why we live, you know, why people live the way they do. Yeah. Um, you know, some things, are, some things are out of our control, some things are. Mm-hmm. But, like, there isn't that connective t- tissue for us to sort of fully understand that. Um, and I think sports, more so than other arenas in the world, whether we like it or not, invites people in of different backgrounds to examine something. And you know, we could all sit in an arena and watch a game. We can watch on TV, whatever else is. We can watch this game, and then if the team wins, we can, you know, we can celebrate in unison, or we can cry in unison. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we all just go home, and then we go back into whatever bullshit we're into. So it's like, let's pull away from that and try to use this moment. Um, again, it's Pollyannish, yeah. but. I still, I still believe in that. I, like listen, I, said, I, I think the the nobility behind the the concept is, it's obviously there. Um, there there's no question. Um, I'd be really curious to see what happens when you actually get it off the ground. I think that there's, I mean, there couldn't possibly be a better moment in time to have something like that. Yeah, and that's the thing about like you know asking like you know the jobs this and the other. The media business has been ravaged for years mm-hmm. by, you know, we know that COVID has done a number on everything and everyone, sure. but it's what COVID did was it exasperated all the issues that already existed. Mm-hmm. And the media industry has had multiple issues that continue to be compounded because people didn't want to adjust when they were supposed to. So you have us being so dependent on what's being said on television and on you know viral tweets mm-hmm. and um, just whatever else is clickbait stuff, right? We're so dependent on that, and we're not supporting like all forms of media that can give us the information that we need, or it can give us an understanding of what's really going on. And you could take this not just the sports, but basically every single subject there is. Yeah. Um, 
And then just, you know, you have venture capital kind of going in and just taking out a lot of newspapers. You have, you know, the, you know, well, you have like the, you have like these large corporations who are involved in the media as well. So that's like a capitalization in that to deal with. It's a lot. Yeah. And I think I, it makes it say, harder for some folks to break through. I would say the, I, the thing that the way that I look at it is like the degradation of like the local community papers and local community TV channels and radio stations and stuff. And like how it's all kind of rolled up to like corporate someone um, yeah. has probably been one of the leading contributing factors to like the massive amount of division divisiveness that we see. And, and yes. listen, I'm no fucking scholar. I'm not going to pretend to have like a PhD in anything, but right. when the, the fact is, remains that there are such a concentrated number of media outlets providing us our daily intake of i'm going to use air quotes of news you have (laughs) to start asking the question of what is the principal like uh opinion or the principal uh slant coming from the place that you're getting your news and i think because no there is no longer an example of an unbiased news network we live in the situation that we do now where it's Republicans versus Democrats, where it's left versus right, where it's white versus black. And it is the most unfortunate thing. I say at least a hundred fucking times a week that we live in the most exhausting time in the history of the world. (laughs) And if I'm laughing to keep him crying, you could not be more right. (laughs) It's, it is, it's truly exhausting. Like I, you know, I was talking to my mom, uh, probably yesterday or the day before. And she was like, Oh my God, did you see on the news today? Like blah, blah. blah. I'm like, no, I I don't watch the six o'clock news. I don't watch the 10 o'clock news. News is just negative. They're they're not going to get people to watch the news by talking about the puppy who ended up from Long Island to San Francisco to find their owners. No, they do one fluff piece with the 14 shootings and the fire that burned down and killed nine people. And it's like, what the fuck is the point of this? Like, yes. I understand that, that, yeah, that media needs to make money and you generate money by stories that convert people to watch the commercials and all that dumb bullshit. But at the end of the day, who is it helping? And it's funny because, like, even in the business side of things, and so I, I want to go back real quick to, like, you know, yeah. when I worked in the, the, the corporate side. So I worked for a couple of advertising agencies. I worked for an advertising agency as well as uh, several TV networks. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the numbers for a living. And I was always fascinated by that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was an undergrad, I was like, well, how do you get into that? Like, I, it wasn't something I directly was seeking out, but it was like, I'm curious. Like, the Nielsen numbers are how, you know, all the decisions are being made. Right. But then it's like, who's making these decisions? And it's like, you know, a bunch of white guys in Long Island, a bunch of white guys in Westchester, a bunch of guys, white guys in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and some white guys in L.A. Mm-hmm. And they're all, and some in New York. And they're all telling you, based on, intentionally limited information. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying this is a conspiracy theory. It's like, but like they look at the same age and number demographics and that's how they tell the story. And even now as the entire industry is trying to figure out how to measure where everybody is going and what's going on, I'm sitting here thinking based on my past experiences, you know, there was even more data available. If you could figure out what people wanted, you just <laughs> never looked for it. Yeah. You know, like totally. you can, you can look by, you know, all the different demographics of race and location and this and the other. And you can also even look down to like car maker, like, you know, what, 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 what brand car they have, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's that, it's that serious and that granular. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. you can find out what people are really, and you can find out what people are really paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And they just never chose to. Yeah. And so now and still what's don't. happened, <laughs> And they still don't, and, and they still refuse to. And what's happened now with, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has been, you know, okay, we found that people are home now, mm-hmm. um, and they're watching more TV, but they're not watching 
traditional linear television, they're watching their streaming devices, they're mm-hmm. watching all this other stuff, and we don't know what's going on. And I'm sitting here thinking every time, like, you guys had a chance. You've had chances for years. Nielsen had been telling you guys where people are going, what's going on, and you chose not to listen. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just so fascinating because then that actually affects everything that we watch, everything that we consume, and what everything gets made. That we're into. Exactly. And it all also goes back to legislation, that 1996 Telecommunications Act, which allowed for the consolidation of all this. Mm-hmm. So it's all like everybody's, this is, everybody's like, it all connects in this way that has led to us being so divided now. Uh-huh. The business has exploited all of our social issues. And I guess for me, again, going back to your larger question, like I want the, I want to take my knowledge of the business and my understanding of, you know, just content production, even if I'm not exactly writing stuff every day, I'd like to find the people that can help me tell these stories and they can tell their own stories and we could find a way to make the business work. Cause there is a way we just haven't forgot the right, the, the right elixir. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, it's like, well, how do you convince people to change their habits to actually support your outlet mm-hmm. to support whatever you're doing? Because now they're so used to getting content for free. Mm. And it's like, well, how do you find a way to make money so you can sustain this and you can get st- it's it's all crazy. And I think about this all the time. I'm, so, um, I'm, and- I'm, I'm genuinely glad that you brought this up um, because I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine about my podcast and um, mm-hmm. Apple now allows people to charge a subscription based you know, dollar figure for people to listen to your podcast. And Mm -hmm. he was like, well, you know, why don't you charge everyone, you know, a dollar or $5 and you could be making some good money on your podcast. And I'm like, listen, man, I was like, I'm not fucking narcissistic enough to think that the things that I'm talking about with the people that I'm talking about need to be behind a paywall. And I said, it ultimately (laughs) folds into this higher level conversation of like a pay to play situation, which is exactly what you're talking about. And the access ultimately starts at zero, right? You know, to have a Twitter account, to have an Instagram account, it's zero. But now we're just inundated with a million other ads and a million other places that we need to see and 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 look at for them to be able to convert my eyeballs and their algorithm into dollars in their pocket i'm so glad you brought that up yeah and and again like everybody's struggling with this Mm -hmm. and even like you know unless you are part of like the major outlets and like i don't want to bash them to be honest with you because one i mean i've worked for a few of them and they have a lot of really good and talented people who work in these places and two, you never know what happens in your career. You might need to go there someday. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, listen, I, I bash everyone equally and have no real qualms about like my opinions on things. And my opinions are are allowed to change. I think just the, right. the general sense of things is like everything can be better, right? There, there's yes. no reason that, that, that we need to be mired in this constant shit shoveling that we deal with on a daily and weekly basis. It's exhausting. It is truly yeah, exactly. exhausting. Exactly. And, and that's my thing, too. Like, I mean, nobody's above criticism and there are some places that are worse than others. Right. And I, I think for me, one of the things that one of the things that stands out is like, again, sports media is a perfect example mm-hmm. where we're all I, I guess as a writer and as an editor, you know, I, I, I graduated in the early 2000s. But from, from undergrad in the early 2000s, but I came up in the blogger era as a writer. Mm-hmm. I have two, I had two business degrees. So I wasn't a writer. I did college radio, and that got me interested in the media business, but I was not a writer. I came up in the blogger era where there was such a diversity in 
the stories that are being told and the way they're being told. And not just like, you know, in terms of demographics, I keep saying that word. Like, it's not just in terms of ethnic diversity, gender diversity, but it was also the way people talked about sports, mm-hmm. right? So you had room to be funny. Mm-hmm. You had room to kind of take like, again, take my viral moment. Mm-hmm. And that could be funny as hell mm-hmm. in a unique way. And then, you know, if I wasn't me, you know, somebody could have interviewed me and, you know, down the line, like five years or 10 years ago, 10 years later, and I could have told them the full story that I just told you guys mm-hmm. about what that day meant. And that could have been a great story. Mm-hmm. But also, like, you can be funny. You can be poignant. You can be interesting. You can be analytical and all this stuff. And the blogger era introduced that. Mm-hmm. And every corporation said, we're losing eyeballs to this. How do we capitalize it? Oh, let's do our own thing. Either we build it ourselves or we just buy the thing, which is what a lot of them start to do now. Mm-hmm. So Spotify saying we need to get into podcasts. We need to get these people. Oh, Joe Rogan's huge. Let's just go ahead and buy the whole goddamn thing and just put it on. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, and that's what's happening. It's like, if you can't make it, you buy it, uh, which you is can't beat them and join them. Right. Can't beat them. Exactly. So it's kind of like, you know, for me, like there is room for that creativity. There's room for all of the stuff, but the business is starting to figure out, like, if we're not going to, if we can't build it successfully and authentically, we're just going to buy the authenticity. Mm. And I think that's sort of, we get angry about it in the beginning, but then when we realize it's the only place to go, then we sort of support it the way we can. And then because it becomes in, because it's in such demand, like, you know, your podcast is, is, is going to grow but there are a lot of other podcasts people can listen to. Mm-hmm. And so the most popular ones, people are going to find a way to make you pay more for it and to continue to limit the access and to continue to actually try to take away most people's time so that then they don't listen to your show mm. and they don't listen to anybody else's. It's like, well, I got to pay. I pay for this because I want these other things. Mm-hmm. Netflix is the same thing. You know, all those other things, this is all the same thing. Like, you know, the streaming services, they're all doing the same thing. We're going to buy your time. Are we are we and gonna it takes, are we gonna reach like a critical mass point where everyone gets ten to fifteen dollars to death? Like, I mean, there's going it, to be. It, it, I mean, I agree. It has to some extent already happened, but I still have Netflix, Hulu, HBO, blah blah. blah. I still have yeah. them all, right? Yeah. So, is there a point in the future in one to five years where there's either a you know massive consolidation among streaming companies and and sports businesses etc or do you just see this kind of pay to play we can get by if we just make our margins work etc kind of a non you know consolidated shift i think it'd be a mix of both i think on the the larger scale the former i do think it's gonna be a lot more consolidated. i think it's very funny when we the streaming services this the 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 the, what they call the mvpds which is basically like the att now and Mm -hmm. the like um you know, Hulu Live, um, multi-video, I, I forgot the acronym, but I had to see it every day and I forgot how to pronounce it. <laughs> but, um, you know, those things existed because they wanted to do something that was not in the realm of the cable operators, mm-hmm. right? So we can go ahead and just brand, bandy these things together and build our own. And then people realize, you know, the companies realize, yo, actually, we're leaving money on the table. Mm-hmm. So we started chasing that, right? Um and people are thinking like, yo, we can break cable. We can do a la carte cable. Your cousin, who obviously I've been friends with for you know twenty plus years, he was always telling me like, yo, a la carte cable. We need to just be able to like take one cable <laughs> channel off of our list and send the other. And I'm like, that's great. That's the idea. It's probably not going to happen as long as they own the seven are yeah. <laughs> Right. As long as it's the same people own the same thing and the same access. And what's funny about that is that people said like with the streaming services, oh, we don't need cable anymore. And I'm like. 
no, cables is going to come back in a different form. Uh-huh. And that's all it is. The bundling's going to happen. Um, you know, there will, be some ni- <laughs> there will be some nickel and diming. I do think that there's going to be some of that, but maybe more on an independent scale. I think it's not being, I think the, the business that exists now, even like the traditional businesses of like TV, newspaper, or whatever else, it's just been reinvented. Mm. I do think the same thing's going to happen over and over again. But I also do believe that what's unique is that, again, you and I weren't able to do a podcast ourselves before. We weren't able to do this, say, we could have done maybe 10 years ago. We could have done this when we were kids. We sure. could have done this in the 90s. We could have done this in the 80s mm-hmm. or anything like that because there's just a barrier entry to kind of get in to do these kind of things. Yes. It just wasn't. Absolutely. We could probably we could have probably found like some, you know, community radio thing. We probably done some pirate radio, or whatever else, but nothing else. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, right. But I, now this can be done. Yeah. And there's always gonna be an avenue like this. It's just a matter of how much bandwidth is it going to have? How much, uh, how much can we market it? How much can you promote it? How much can you break through? And that's really going to be the struggle of uh, independent folks, which mm. is what I want to be. Honestly, I just want to be independent. I yeah. don't have any, I just want to be able to do my thing help my team make a good living from it, make a good living myself. Yeah. Provide influence. Mm. And that's it. (laughs) You know, I I don't want to be ESPN. I don't want to be anything like that. I mean, I respect it, but like, I don't, I don't want that. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. So like a a significant portion of my life, like the growth that I've felt as an individual has happened like over the last five years. And like a lot of time that Mm -hmm. I spent like, okay, when you're like in high school, it's like, all right, I'm going to go to graduate high school. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to graduate college. I'm going to get my first job for you is like college Mm -hmm. MBA. So it's like, everything's like when I'm 25, when I'm 30, when I'm 35, when I'm 40, it's like, everything's like you're, you're parsing out like your future. Right. Um, yeah. Do you, have you, I've recently reached a point in my life where I'm much less focused on where I'm going to be five years from now and a lot more focused on like, what am I going to do in the next one to five, I'm going to say business days is a joke, uh, one to five <laughs> business days to make myself happy and fulfilled. Um, how do you look at like what you do work-wise, life-wise, et cetera, to like kind of uh, put a vision to the future of what like the, the next couple of years of your life look like? Well, it's a hell of a question because it's it's funny. I'm sort of in that I don't, maybe not the same exact position as you, mm-hmm. um, but I've had to do a significant change over the last few years, mm-hmm. um, and I credit my wife to that. Um, you know, she's we've been together, we've been together a decade, but we've been married for three years, but we've been together almost a decade. We have a you know nearly three year old son, and I think I, I met and we we just celebrated our wedding anniversary earlier this week. And for me, I say her because, like, I didn't see her coming at all. I didn't see – it's not that I didn't want to be in a relationship or anything like that, but I never really thought of myself in, like, the romantic realm. I never thought about marriage to the same degree. It's like, oh, it'd be nice, but it wasn't a huge thing for me. For me, you know, through those age periods, as you mentioned, it was career progression, you know, travel. um, Hopefully I'd be doing certain things. That's what I was thinking, like, down the line. Like, Mm -hmm. I figured – when I came out of Babson, I went to Babson College, undergrad. Um, when I came out of Babson, I was thinking, once I get on, wherever it is, you know, when I'm in my mid-30s, maybe I'll go ahead and finally have my company, have my media company, and I'll just be able to do the thing full throttle, mm-hmm. right? And everything I was doing was taking steps towards that, especially like, you know, I didn't necessarily have the journalism background, so I had to kind of build that. Um, and then, honestly, like I said, I met my wife a decade ago, and that really just... I didn't see it coming at all. And being in a relationship actually forces you to change things, whether you, whether you like it or not. Most of the time, it's good. Um, but for me, the change was 
having to sort of sit back and breathe a little bit. Mm-hmm. I had to understand. I, I have a great circle of friends. Um, my family has been incredibly supportive, you know, for, for everything I do, the ups and downs and all that. And I've gone through, I've gone through layoffs. I've gone through firings. I've gone through a lot of shit professionally. Um, and, you know, being in a relationship actually sort of pulls you in because you have somebody who's asking you, what do you want? Mm. You have, some, you have somebody who's kind of pulling you in and just sort of say like, I need you to really, I have a lot of people who have done that, but like when you, there's somebody who you're just sharing the same space with every day, you really don't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> and does especially, that, I was going to say, especially because she's a psychologist. <laughs> so I definitely don't have a choice, but to really have to think about these things. And I would say like for me now, um, now I am like you, I'm especially with a, you know, a toddler running around you really have to kind of think of things week by week mm-hmm. and you still, but it doesn't mean for me, I went from thinking about like, you know, a decade from now to thinking about, well, I'm thinking about the next year and I'm going to plan that. I'm going to still, you know, save and do whatever else I can for that and at least start some projects to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. But I still have to think about this week and what my son needs, what I need to get done. It's a balance now that I didn't have on time in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's been, and again, also professionally, I've gone through, you work in media, especially now, if you work in the media business now, you're guaranteed to get laid off at some point. Oh, for unfortunately. sure. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to be going through some things unless you are independently wealthy, whatever else. And mm-hmm. so the, the combination of those two things happening when they had um, were the catalyst for me to sort of change the way I sort of saw my life. And, you know, hey, some people are going to have, you know, whether you build a family or not, you know, whatever personal decisions, whatever personal decisions you have, it's what you do. Mm-hmm. You make the best of what's in front of you. And for me, I think being married, having a child, that forces decisions, that forces you to change some decisions you make. Yeah. Um, you may have to put some things on the back burner, not because you don't love them anymore, mm-hmm. but you don't have the energy at oh, the sure. given moment to do it. Absolutely. And, but for me, and I got this advice from other people. It doesn't mean you don't stop thinking. It doesn't mean you don't stop planning. You just have to adjust. And so I always carry a notebook around where I write down some ideas. Um, a website, that, the website, I mentioned the whole game that I started. I started in February in between jobs, um, but that was for me to sort of just get something started. To mm-hmm. say like, I, I've always wanted to do this. Let me start it. And I got a team together. When we can come together and figure this out, we'll continue to build as we go along. And for me, that's as much as I can do right now until I know, hey, when my kid's in like preschool or kindergarten, and I can have some hours free again, you know, where I don't have to worry about certain things or my job has allowed me to do certain things, then I can actually devote some extra time to getting back into the business. I like you that. know, but it's and this is this these these are plans, but God man plans and God laughs. Yeah, so right. you never know. Do you think uh that unconditional love and support that you have from your wife gives you confidence to be able to say like I could do anything I can do XYZ I can start the site I can freelance I can blah blah absolutely absolutely um I think so you know I got laid off from a couple of the networks that were going through mass layoffs or just making their own changes Mm -hmm. and those were rough periods just trying to find a new job Mm -hmm. I mean like incredibly rough um and so the last company I worked for before I started with Insider Intelligence was Yard Barker. Mm-hmm. Um, Yard Barker was under the Fox umbrella for a bit, then it spun back out. Anyway, 
and like any other media company, it's gone through ups and downs. Mm-hmm. I was with them for four. I was with them for four years. I started off part time with them. Like, hey, you know what? This may be the time I can kind of go full throttle into the sports media and no longer just do it on the side like I did, you know, past jobs. It helped that my wife was, you know, my wife working and all that stuff. That, mm-hmm. that definitely helped. I was still bringing in some sort of income and all that. I was starting to freelance a little bit whenever I could. Um, but then, like, I also felt very comfortable with the company mm-hmm. and where I got to kind of really build myself out as an editor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was with them for four years. I got first my first ever promotions with that company. I got to, you know, just cover different events or just do different work that we've done in the past. And I got to, again, really build out, you know, the discipline of being an editor mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't have a chance to before. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that was, I'm, I'm grateful to my wife for that. Cause I know it wasn't easy at all. Mm-hmm. Kind of really taking, it was a massive pay hit, pay cut. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of things that changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm still also looking for jobs here and there, looking for other part-time work, whatever I can do until that became a full-time job. Um, and again, it was it was not easy at times, but still I paid him rent, still able to take, take, take care of the bills, still able to take care of my son. I was able to be home with him. I, I'm still able to be home with him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I worked remotely for four years. So that was a blessing in disguise when we had our son yeah. because I was home. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that came from, and it's not easy. It wasn't easy for her. And I know there are times where she's like, I can't believe it took this long for you to get to a certain point, you know? Yeah. But it's it's a work in progress but i've you know i've supported her in certain things as well and that's we to me that's what we're supposed to do you mm, know absolutely um, but it's not that easy for people at times when somebody's struggling with a vision or somebody's struggling with some personal issues or whatever else and after a while you become impatient mm-hmm. and know she had been impatient with things and i would try to do my the best i could to make the adjustments and to help out you mm, know i like but that i think it's been it's been good yeah i love that i think one of the the most I think like the largest takeaway I try to pull out of these conversations is that every single person, no matter your walk of life, no matter what you do for a living, no matter what you're, you know, growing up was like, we all have an immensely relatable shared life experience. And if we did a better job, this is my kumbaya moment, by the way, if we do a better (laughs) job of trying to just relate to people versus like focusing on the things that make us different, life would be so much fucking easier. It would just be so much easier. Yeah, I agree. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm going to be very quick about this one. <laughs> last week, last week, uh, I, took, I took my son to a playground nearby. Um, I live in Harlem, mm-hmm. um, which is basically where I grew up. But um, took a nearby playground, and there, was a, there were a couple of parents with their kids, and... You know, they just moved from Florida. They only been in the area for four months and trying to figure things out. I was wearing my mask under my chin, and she had asked, like, "I'm sorry, I don't know if it's personal or whatever else." Like, "Yo, did you get the vaccine?" And I was like, "Yeah, I got the vaccine." Is any other? And like, I, my family lost a few people through COVID and all that stuff. So like, we've been through a lot. Sorry to hear that. And um, no, it, you know what? It's it's what it is. Everybody in my family is doing what they're supposed to do as much as I could ask for, right? <laughs> but um, she asked about this because she wasn't vaccinated yet, and she had COVID. Mm. And I've been very angry about a lot of people who weren't vaccinated, but I also started to understand that there are certain situations where, you know, there are people who just couldn't get the, get a, get the shots yet. Mm-hmm. Then there are people who believe the crazy political bullshit. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, I'm, I'm not even talking to y'all. And then there are a bunch of people in the middle. Mm-hmm. And I met one of those people. She was a woman who was sort of in the middle, but her conversations were more about 
uh, about her concerns about passing something to her kids, mm-hmm. right? And that began a discussion that I, I was I was calm. It was just a free flowing sort of thing, in which her and her you know her partner were like, "Yeah, we're going to look into getting a shot now." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Listen, I mean, please do. I mean, it'd be great. It'd be awesome. You know, if I see you guys again, tell me how it went and all that jazz." But it was a really good conversation. It was that same thing. And mm-hmm. what was the connection about that? For a very volatile conversation, a very volatile topic these days about vaccines, it came down to the fact that we both had kids at the park that were playing together. Yeah. And that's sometimes it. And I wasn't trying to, I mean, I was trying to convince her to get the shot. <laughs> yeah. But I wasn't, but I wasn't trying to like, you know, beat her in the head about it. Yeah. I shouldn't say those words, but I wasn't <laughs> trying to like, you know, really get heavy on her about it. Well, she's from Florida. And it became so. <laughs> Yeah, but but also it was like, but also in fairness, you know, her her son is autistic and all okay. that jazz. That's fair. So like, I understood there were certain. It was. I was like, all right, that calmed me down. Yeah, and well, it was just, because at the end of the day, Jason, you had a conversation with a person. You were able to talk it out like a rational human being and have a discussion about it. Because what what has been lost over the divisiveness that is this disease and everything that's transpired between two presidencies and the litany of other bullshit that has gone on over the last. 16 months is that we can have conversations they can be productive they can be uh you know a a, a conversation style that doesn't have to be adversarial and yes that is a great proof of of that case which is nice to hear um for sure so i uh i like to spend the the last bit of each podcast doing kind of uh, a little rapid fire uh question and answer kind of session some of them are super easy a couple of them are like a little heavy um but you don't have to like really overthink it and there's no right answer obviously so my first question for you is what is your favorite movie oh okay um i guess that's hard because some days I'll tell you it's the Water Boy. <laughs> um, my favorite movie, my favorite movie is actually um, uh, the Great White Hope. Oh, okay. Um, it, it's it's um, James Earl Jones, yeah. Jane Alexander, mm-hmm. based off of the play, which is loosely based off of the life of Jack Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my favorite, and it's also like the most influential story for me in terms of getting into business too. I like so, that. Cool. Yeah. What's uh, what's your favorite book? Oh, that's even harder. I mean, you can oh, give it like a couple. God. You can give a couple. Um, the Taurus from Olin Steinhauer. I actually love his work. Spy novels. Oh, really okay. good. Okay. Very nice. Um, Tana French as well. She makes some great stories too. Um, so suspense novels. But yeah, I would say right now The Taurus from Olin Steinhauer. Cool. What's your favorite food? Oh, I'm it. You'll appreciate this. I'm Italian. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, I, yeah, I, it's funny. Like, you know, I, I love my soul food, but like Italian was always to my heart. I can't explain. It just was. I mean, it's a common thread amongst guests. So I, I can't, yeah. can't knock you for it for sure. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what are you most proud of? Ah, uh, wow. <laughs> it could be a lot. Hmm. Um, the continued growth of my son. I, like I mean, that. you know, he, he's almost he's almost three, but like just the way he's picking up on everything around him and still being this, you know, joyful, fascinating kid, frustrating at times, <laughs> but like just watch, but watching his growth and watch people kind of like, you know, be around him and he's just, that that's it. It's just, I'm proud that my wife and I are doing a good job so far. Oh, I love that. Do you believe in an afterlife? Yeah, I do. I like that. Yeah. 
What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? <laughs> it's from my mother. Uh, I love you, Catherine. <laughs> Sometimes you got to know when to shut the fuck up. Oh, I fucking love that. Oh, what a good piece of advice. Yeah, it's ironic for a media person, right? But really, that's what it is. I, I find myself saying this at least once or twice a week. Sometimes you got to know when to shut the fuck up. Uh, Ari Gold, um, silence is golden. I there like it is. Uh, last question is, what's one recommendation that you have for everyone listening today? Uh, something that you've consumed lately. It could be a movie, a podcast, a TV show, a book. Just something that you've recently consumed uh, that you'd like to uh, recommend to everybody. Oh, man. So I'm not going to give it the recent cliches, although I enjoy Ted Lasso. I oh. enjoy some of these things out there. But uh, I just, you know what? I just I just finished watching like, the last season because it's crazy. Um, if you have Showtime, Black Monday. Oh, okay. Um, I know it's like, I think Seth Rosen was a producer on it, but this was Don Cheadle uh, and Regina Hall. Regina Hall is amazing because she's hysterical she's in a way that I didn't expect. Really? She is, oh. like, yeah, but, but even in this, like, because she's, I think everybody knew her from, like, the scary movies like yeah. that because she was always a comedic actress. Uh-huh. And I think she's in this, she's in the show Perfect Non-Perfect Strangers, which is, I just started oh watching. Oh, my God. That was going to be my recommendation. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Yeah. I just started the second episode of it, like, late last night. It's really good. So but, good, yeah. So she, she's in that. But, like, but Black Monday, this is, like, to me in a way for her, like, I don't want to say a coming out party because she's, like, in her late 40s. Yeah. But, like, this is the thing where she's, like, really like holy shit i didn't know she had this good comedic chops i like that. um and don Cheadle is just like you know he's a fantastic actor but i didn't know he could do comedy as well either so mm. it's it goes back to like uh it's a show it's supposed to be about like it's a it's a fictionalized version of like the 1987 wall street crash mm-hmm. and you know they were starting like they were like the only black brokerage and they hired this dude i think his name is uh the actor's name andrew randall okay he was like this innocent sort of kid who's just trying to get a job on wall street but they kind of corrupted the kid <laughs> um but it's just that it's crazy as shit yeah um, i'm gonna check it out have, I, fucking, like, I love don Cheadle. yeah don Cheadle's all so you'll love this show if you liked um god it's just such a wacky ass fucking show that's all i can really describe it as and like it has a lot of really good like comedian actors um god i can't believe i'm forgetting his name Paul Schiff, I think his name is. He's married to June Raphael, uh, June Diane Raphael, and all this stuff. There's a lot of interesting comedic actors who are in this. Mm-hmm. It's actually Horatio Sands is in this motherfucking thing. Oh, like, no it's shit. kind of funny. Nice. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like this off the wall kind of thing about like Wall Street, but then it goes beyond Wall Street in later seasons. Nice. Um, but I loved it. They just finished the third season, and I loved it because it's just like off the wall. That's good. I need something to binge. My my recommendation was going to be Nine Perfect Strangers. I watched all three episodes. It's fucking batty and also hysterical and and dark and funny. And there is a moment yes. in I'm not sure if it's episode two. There is a moment between Melissa McCartney and Bobby Carnival. It's like this hilarious little intimate in moment the in the pool. I was yes. fucking crying laughing. I don't know why, <laughs> Jason. I was crying laughing. I had to pause the episode. I couldn't fucking stop laughing. It just tickled me in a way I haven't laughed like that in a while. And uh, it's on yeah. Hulu. Definitely check it out. And uh, it's it's a it's going to be an interesting series for sure. Um, yeah, I just I, I couldn't laugh too hard because like my son was sleeping like, right yeah. next to me. But I'm like, yo, this shit is fucking crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm excited to see the rest of it because I was like, yo, this is 
actually really good so far. It is good. Uh, listen, Jason, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I really appreciate this conversation. I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, I have a guilty pleasure of, of telling everyone who comes on the podcast that we're family now. Uh, so welcome to the Pachudos. Hopefully we can share some uh, good pasta soon. And uh, thanks again for coming on, buddy. I really appreciate it. Uh, same here. And it'd be great to you know, for us to actually catch up in person again because it's been in such a long time. Um, and, but yeah, I'm happy to be on. This is an honor to be on your show, man. Thank you. No problem. <laughs>